Good afternoon and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Sprinkle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Hello, and welcome to today's Coastal Conversations called Life and Science on Mount Desert Rock. Today, we venture out to the most remote of all of Maine's islands, Mount Desert Rock, which lies about 22 nautical miles south of Mount Desert Island. Mount Desert Rock is as desolate as it sounds, an exposed ledge, barely three acres in size, that emerges from the sea, surrounded by a remarkably productive patch of ocean. Since the early 19th century, the island has had a light tower to assist mariners and various buildings to house lightkeepers' families. In the mid-20th century, the island was occupied by the United States Coast Guard, and since the 1990s, after the Coast Guard automated the light station, Mount Desert Rock has been the home of the Edward McSee Blair Marine Research Station, operated by College of the Atlantic out of Bar Harbor. This past July, I had the incredible good fortune of spending about 36 hours on this little tiny island in the middle of the Gulf of Maine, amidst the student researchers, station managers, and gulls. Hundreds and hundreds of incessantly squawking herring gulls and great blackback gulls. You too will become accustomed to the omnipresent gull sound on today's show as it was entirely recorded on location, which means, of course, we won't be taking any calls today. We'll start our exploration with a history of Mount Desert Rock with Olivia Jolly, one of this summer's station managers and a recently graduated senior at College of the Atlantic, whose final project was to develop a comprehensive timeline of the island through interviews and archival research. We'll then hear about life on the rock and the rhythms of the daily research tasks, like tower watches, where all wildlife and vessels spotted from the lighthouse are documented in an ever-growing, decades-old data set. We'll learn about the scientific, logistical, and artistic work happening at Mount Desert Rock this summer, from interviews with a number of this summer's undergraduate residents, all of whom will be credited at the end of the show. And then we'll wrap it up with a conversation among the residents about the ethical questions they are grappling with related to science and the impact of humans on Mount Desert Rock's wildlife, from sharks to seals to gulls, the omnipresent gulls, and even down to the microscopic plankton species that drive this complex oceanic food web. So let's start our exploration of Mount Desert Rock with Olivia Jolly taking us back to Samuel Champlain, the early 17th century French navigator who was among the first European explorers to document these shores and who gave the island its name. It's of course safe to assume that Maine's native tribes preceded Champlain by hundreds if not thousands of years, leaving marks that are perhaps more elusive but no less significant. Thank you. 
first approaching the history, it was from 1831 um, or 1604 when Champlain um, was sailing by and described it as Mount Desert Rock. Um, to when the first lighthouse was built in 1830, and then the second one being built out of granite from the rock itself in 1847. Um, just the evolution of the space and the different incarnations it's had from a family lighthouse station to a Coast Guard establishment to a research station it was just, it's one of the weirdest places for all of those things because it's so remote, but it's so important because this is the farthest point out. We see the first sunrise on the East Coast, and we get to say hi to the sun first, which is a beautiful thing to think about, but it's such a special place, and it's there is nowhere else like Mount Desert Rock, at least that I have experienced and that many of the people I've interviewed have confirmed that this place gives a lot. Um, and then we have lots of chicks. They're all popping out everywhere. Say hi to the guests. Run, little bebes. These are some of the, the, the oldest ones that we've had this season. Yeah, but their wings are so big. But these, these guys compared. are kind of used to you like being near their chicks, I guess, right? Kind of. The chicks, like, yeah. The chicks will sometimes scatter, but most of the time... So the first good. lighthouse out here was built in 1830, and it was a stone keeper's dwelling with a wooden tower attached. So all of it was contained in one building. Um, and the environment and weather tore that to shreds, basically. Um, there were reports of inspectors a couple years into it that were just saying this place is falling apart, but it's so important because this is the entrance to Frenchman Bay and all of these other harbors and waterways that are really important to trade and anyone going up to the Canadian border or anyone coming down towards all of the rest of New England, Boston, New York, it's super important to have this landmark um, in a place where there's not necessarily too much else to rely on. Um, but as people, I think, realized how important the rock was, more keepers were added. So usually people would spend two years, three years, ten years out, and there's a long list of keepers. And when the fog bell got added to the station, it created a whole new job or set of jobs for um, the keeper, so they needed another keeper. But all three attempts at having a fog bell here, it still couldn't be heard over the waves, so that got solved with the um, foghorn. But in addition to keeping the light, which at this point there was a general transition from whale oil, um, to kerosene um, during these times, but you would be lighting candles with lamps and reflectors to make it as bright and um, noticeable as possible. So as more things got added to the station, the number of people and the number of structures out here 
I don't want to say it grew exponentially because it's only a three-acre island, but um, you have the second keeper's dwelling built, which accommodated three families now. So the building we're in right now, there was another building built here. The original stone dwelling was where this double house is. It's mirrored, um, so all the doors that we can pass through now didn't exist because everyone had their front porch and their back porch. Sometimes they'd have just so many kids out here, which is a wild thought to think of like five to eight year olds running around. Um, and then there was a period in the Rock's history where I don't want to say like things kind of waned, but it was closed for a season or two or three. Um, I think Steve Catelna was the first person to tell me this. He was the president of COA at one point, but at the very beginning, he was the, I believe, marine biology professor. Um, and the first class at College of the Atlantic all got to go out and look at the rock. All the people who wanted to make this institution of human ecology real um, got loaded up on a boat and while they were on their way out here, they were like, there's whales, there's life. There's so many possibilities out here. And that was when that first became an idea that this is right in our backyard. And this is something that should be revered. I'm not quite sure what the right word would be. Um, and then in 73 or 74, the first like, groups of COA people got to come out and that was during the time of the Coast Guard so there were two or three Coast Guard guys living out here and um, COA men got the opportunity because at the time women weren't allowed on the station because it was Coast Guard run um, got to come out and it was a lot of land-based observation of whales and birds and seals and everything that flew or swam by um, and then it kind of moved into this new period where um, Coast Guard automates it in 1977 and then you go on to mist netting and bird banding um, and they were doing a lot of work with zodiacs and doing the um, North Atlantic humpback whale catalog um, using fluke ID this is like one of the birthplaces of that method of telling individual whales apart from each other so you can get a better idea of population structure, where they are and when they are, and matching the whales up here with whales down in Bermuda during other times of the year. But they were shifting more towards um, boat-based ops, so they were going out and tracking whales from a more mobile um, point of view as opposed to being on the fixed point that is the rock and searching for them out in the tower this way. They were tracking them and getting, I believe they were starting to get um, samples of skin and things like that. And during that time, um, the station was kind of, was not in use. And then as research interest shifted back to looking at it, um, I remember this is around the time of like early 90s station reopens and then research continues but the culture is completely different and around that time is when the birds started settling because 
there weren't a bunch of college kids running around and chasing whales, so the birds are like, this is the perfect place. And then when they returned, um, there's a colony established here. So it was really interesting to learn about the switch during that time period, and honestly a couple of years before, in the mid-late 80s, um, because that's also the time that like the harbor seals and the gray seals were starting to establish themselves, um, and it was a more harbor-heavy um, seal community, and there were only a couple of gray seals. So it's so weird with the birds settling in and the number of gray seals rising um, steadily to the point where we are today, but trying to like backtrack into a time where maybe you'd see like two or three gray seals and that would be a good day, or you'd have less than 10 birds staying all day on the island to thousands of gulls and thousands of seals using this to breed and to live and it's just so weird looking at it in a larger time scale. It's definitely fun to see the MDR reports from earlier um, in its life with COA because they were finding out so much more about whales. They were doing a lot of respiration studies and creating these catalogs of individual species, not species, individuals, um, humpbacks and finbacks and starting to lay the foundation for a lot of these records that have helped answer so many questions. Um, but as science, as the world is changing and as the rock is changing, science is also changing. So there's a lot of focus on genetics and other I don't want to say smaller things, but things that aren't necessarily visible to the eye. And it's cool to be out here and still be able to ask those questions and think in those terms and think in those realms of science. Like if we were testing the DNA of all these seals, like how related are they? But also being in the space where we can also be naturalist and just stand up on the tower and observe. Because you're, you're going to learn more about a goal by watching them just exist out here than trying to read everything that's been published about them. You get a real sense of these patterns and trends in a way that you're not going to forget because it's repeated exposure. A lot of the island comes, or a lot of living here and doing what we do here, it, it, it comes in in repetition, or, or, or it's thick, cyclical. I mean, you wake up every morning and then you check the, or you before you go to bed the night before, you check the schedule. You're like, okay, I watch it this time, watch it that time, I have this chore, and you go and you do that. And you end up, you know, having watch at the same time, one, one time in the, in the season. Um, but it's, it's, we don't, it's not like there's weekends. There are 10 watches per day. We start at 6 in the morning and end at 5 in the evening. We have an hour break for lunch at noon. Um, and so essentially you just go up to the tower for an hour at a time and there are two people in the tower at once and you basically, you take a side um, and you just kind of watch the ocean and write down 
Um, pretty much anything that you see. We, we don't really record seabirds or um, seals, those are in separate data sets, but we record boats that come within, well, probably about 10 miles is how far we can, like, see things reliably. Um, um, and of course, what we're looking for mainly is things like whales, um, tuna, basking sharks, mola molas. And the only thing that breaks up that kind of day-to-day, -day, not monotony, but, but repetition, um, are the boat days, which themselves are, are a repetition, but that's, that's, that's when something, something bigger happens. The watches are, are taken off and everybody goes down to the boat ramp to unload things together. Um, and we, uh get to chat with people from the outside. Yeah, so essentially you can hear all of the birds screaming outside. That's probably because everyone's running down the boat ramp to get to receiving the osprey. So the osprey is about 15 minutes out. Um, so and the osprey is? The research vessel that the uh, College of the Atlantic owns, captained by Toby Stevenson. And today we're receiving our shipment of food that we usually get every Thursday. Sometimes it comes on Wednesdays, sometimes not. Um, but it's a lot of food and it's a lot of work for everyone to get down there, receive the Zodiacs, which are the small boats that go between the Osprey and the boat ramp. Basically takes at least half the crew at this point. It takes about five or six people to really nicely catch the Zodiacs on the boat ramp. And then it takes the whole crew to bring up all of the supplies from the Zodiac up to the top of the boat ramp and then once everything's settled then we usually get the oceanographic crew out onto the Osprey to conduct copepod research, um, look for sharks and whales, and also measure water quality across the whole water column. So while that's happening we'll bring all of the food in and unpack everything, get it all sorted where it needs to go. Um, people's letters will come in on that stuff, just like random packages. So Thursdays are kind of like Christmas for us. Um, otherwise, what's going on on the island today, um, as of I believe 7 o'clock, we saw two basking sharks and then over the course of the next hour, uh, we ended up seeing probably, I'm not sure what the count on the Atlantic white-sided dolphins was, but tons of them, um, at least one harbor porpoise, ton like quite a few mola mola, two finback whales, and some un unidentified shark-like creature um, with a long pointed dorsal fin, and I think there was another one, I'm not sure if it's the same one or a different one, but there was some sort of shark where the caudal fin was um, very jagged, so that's likely not a basking shark unless it's just been worn down in a weird way, but um, probably some other species of shark, which is super exciting. I think the reason that everything's coming in is there's like a huge shoal of pogies around, so you can see them in some of the gull nests scattered around. Um, Tess has seen a lot just being brought in by the gulls, so that's a good sign for everything else around here that's feeding off of those pogies. So um, you can see, I think there's been a lot more puffins, a lot of gannets diving, um, and then of course all of those cetaceans and like larger fish species that are going around. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of tuna around too. So. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Our show today is Life and Science on Mount Desert Rock.
featuring a series of interviews recorded in July 2021 on location at Mount Desert Rock, a three-acre ledge more than 20 miles out to sea. Mount Desert Rock has served as a base of operations for science, art, and interdisciplinary studies for students and researchers from College of the Atlantic since the 1970s. In our next segment, we'll hear stories about the work being carried out this summer by a few of the 14 members of the 2021 Mount Desert Rock crew. So, back in 2019, um, there was a student named Andrea Clates who started a project um, on the plankton out here. She was really interested in the right whale populations and the declines in um, what was happening with the whales around here. Right whales um, traditionally use the area around Mount Desert Rock as uh, feeding grounds during the summertime, and um, they are no longer coming here, and she wanted to figure out why. And um, there's been a lot of uh, debate among fishermen and scientists as to why the whales aren't coming back and um, rather than um, siding with fishermen or scientists she wanted to look at um, how climate change is affecting the whales and specifically their food. So she proposed a study um, focusing on the how healthy the copepods are around here and copepods are a type of zooplankton um, little, some of the smallest animals in the world, and um, right whales and all of the whales around here are filter feeders. They use something called baleen um, to filter hundreds of thousands of microscopic organisms every day, and that's what they eat. And um, so she wanted to focus on how climate change, uh, the Gulf of Maine is rapidly warming, so how this rapid warming in the Gulf of Maine is affecting um, their food source and how it's affecting them. So I took on the project after Andrea. Uh, she's no longer at COA. Um, and I, so every week I go out um, and I tow from multiple sites around Mount Desert Rock in traditional feeding areas. And then I bring those samples of plankton back and I look at them under a microscope. I photograph them, identify them by their species. Um, I measure how long they are and I measure how fatty they are, so how healthy they are. And um, the results have been really interesting so far. And there's a lot of diversity. I've seen a lot of really cool microorganisms and um, I, it's, it's really interesting to see the world beneath the lens um, that most of us don't see, and that is directly impacting a species of whale that is so hotly contested, I guess. Um, primarily, I'm just overseeing, helping to oversee everything, but I'm also working on herring gulls and great blackback gulls through John Anderson. So we are banding as many birds as we can. We're putting color bands on adults um, when they're sitting on eggs. And then we're banding all the chicks with federal bands so hopefully they can be recited at some point in the future. So a federal band is basically, it's like a, it's a federal document that they give us um, through the USGS and we basically put it on the leg of a, a chick or an adult and then 
usually the metal bands are for if the bird is found dead later on because it's easier to read when the bird is dead um, and you can tell how old it was where it was first banded and all that jazz but then you put the color colored bands on which are much easier to read in the field so you can have an observer identify them and then uh, report them online or find them some other way and then you can get the same details but it's just an easier way to know exactly where they're coming from. So the nesting birds are herring gulls, great blackback gulls, common eiders, and leeches storm petrels. Interestingly enough we have a few nesting leeches storm petrels. Um, we've heard them at night a few times this season but they nest underground in burrows and we don't have that much ground so it's kind of difficult to find their burrows. There's one on this uh, northwestern side of the house, um, but we haven't caught it on game cam yet. We also have nesting common eiders, so this year has actually been rather successful with uh, ducklings so far. Um, we at one point had like 24 or something, which is the most I've ever seen here, but I've only, I haven't counted them in a couple days but because of the fog. But, um, but we also, of course, get many other seabirds. Uh, we get a lot of Puffins, uh, common murres, razorbills, guillemots. Um, we also get shearwaters. We've had great shearwater, sooty shearwater, mink shearwater, and quarry shearwater so far this year. And we also see a lot of Wilson storm petrels basically every day. If you look out the window, you're likely going to see one. Um, that's most of the normal seabirds we get. We had a south polar skua a couple days ago, which um, was nice to have so early in the season because I recall three years ago I had about 35 or so. But, um, and then two years ago I had zero, so every year it kind of fluctuates, possibly as the whales fluctuate as well, because we didn't have as many whales uh, two years ago as we did three years ago. It might just mean that there's more food source available, so when the skuas are following the other birds, such as shearwaters, which can actually smell pretty well, they're a prey item, and they can, so they're following around the food as the whales are following around the food. So when there are more birds, there's going to be, there's likely to be more whales, you know, as a bioindicator, birds can, I think, find food easier. Um, and then so skuas kind of follow the other birds because skuas are um, kleptoparasites, so they basically chase other species to steal their food. And we also sometimes get Jaegers but haven't had any this season, and they're the same genus as a skua, so they're, uh, but they all nest in the northern hemisphere, and south polar skua nests in Antarctica, but this is now their summer, well their winter, and so it's our summer up here, but because it's their winter down in the southern hemisphere, then they move up uh, the ocean basin up up to here. It's really cool to see what species are showing up. There's, you know, a trickle of birds every day, um, something new, but just, it's just like the, you know, we're always curious about what the next thing could be. And just, I don't know, it's just an amazing place to kind of do longitudinal stuff with, you know, seeing which birds come back each year. Um, my project here is um, looking at herring gull nests and kind of the family dynamics of them and how they change as chicks grow up and how chicks relate to their siblings and their parents. Um, and basically for doing that, um, I chosen like five study nests that you can see from the tower. And with Nathan's help, um, we banded all of the adults from those nests so we can tell uh, who the parents are when they're around. And then, um, We've also banded all the chicks, and um, I go around and we weigh the chicks um, kind of every other day, maybe a bit less than that because it's kind of invasive. Um, but yeah, we weigh them to see um, how the chicks are. Yeah, it's a good like measurement of their health. Um, and then also we 
put some paint on their heads um, to mark which one's the oldest and which one's the middle child and which one's the youngest. Um, and then other than that, we spend um, like three hours a day up in the tower kind of watching the nests and marking down um, when the chicks are begging, um, if they're getting fed, um, and then also if the chicks are like, how they're at, like relating to other chicks, so if they're like snuggling or if they're pecking each other or pushing each other. Um, and then also part of that is we want to know the survival rate of chicks that are away from the house versus close to the house, so we have an additional five nests that we check um, to see and to compare like how the chicks are surviving. I am a part of that project too, working with the uh, baby chicks and kind of, you know, going around and weighing and painting and observing. Um, but more specifically, I'm here as like a videographer um, and I'm working on a wildlife documentary starring our very own adorable wee chick babes um, and that's been incredible because I've never like done wildlife documentary before or been this close to a bird before and to kind of come out here and just immediately be like thrown into a bird colony is is a really crazy experience way different than anything I've ever done um, and there it's it's like not always that easy because the birds don't really like you and so if you go and try to video or like set your camera up sometimes the camera spooks them or you spook them or it's hard to get the shot right so Ryan graciously helped me get a box actually it was a whole thing I made a box out of cardboard a bird blind but I call it my box and <coughs> I bring it out into the colony and I set it up and I sit in it and I, there's a little hole in it for my camera lens to pop out and I spend like an, an hours in there and I love it but it's there are some issues because it's kind of windy out here and so the cardboard flaps and, and, and like blows away and hits my camera and it's jiggly and loud and it was kind of an unideal situation and then Ryan helped me build my bird box um, which has a wooden frame so that the wind can't move it as much as well as keeping it grounded um, with the extra weight because the cardboard box would like flip up sometimes. Um, and I spend my time in that box and I, and I video the birds and I love them. <laughs> Of events, I was offered uh, a uh, kind of a, a position here doing grounds and building maintenance. Um, so that's what I do. Um, I'm uh, the, the, the shop dude pretty much. I'll fix stuff, make sure everything's running correctly, change out propane tanks. Um, and because I, I have a, a bit of experience with boats and on the water, I'm kind of the, the, the support person for, for projects doing that. Uh, outside of the uh, boat days, when we use osprey. Um, but on the side, I'm also writing poetry, writing music, just enjoying being out here. Um, yeah, just a variety of different things, kind of whatever needs to be done, I'll do it pretty much.
Um, one of the projects uh, that we're working on is the Wounded Seal Project, which is we, we go up into the seal blinds, which is in the boat shed, and we assess the entire, or at least the most of the entirety of the seal populations um, on the seal ledges at both low and high tide, just to get an idea of what kind of wounds, how often they're wounded, if there's any sort of interesting trends. Um, so we're at probably close to 480 photo ID'd um, seal wounds, some repeats of the same individual, some multiple pictures of the same individual. It's really interesting to look at. Historically, there wasn't a seal population on the island. I think it was in the 70s they were saying that there was like maybe like six seals was a high count. Mm. Um, no grays. Yeah, no grays. Um, so I think that was from um, the population was low and then there was human activity around. So um, they've kind of, there's been a research which has also led to us like, okay, now that there's prey, that could mean more great whites coming mm. and investigating. Mm. Sometimes it can be a bit difficult to see exactly what the wounds are, but we usually like, oh, that's an abrasion, that's a laceration. Um, but we have definitely seen um, marks on seals that follow the crescent shape of the jaw, and then you have it on either side of the seal, which is like, that's definitely a jaw mark. Um, and they are typically on the lower um, kind of posterior end of the seal, which is where there's like the fatty liver, which is what they're going for. Um, and we've... I think mostly seeing old kind of healing wounds. Um, there may have been one that was pretty recent, like pretty um, kind of ripped up seal. Um, Within at least a day or two. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so they can be pretty big. Um, I would say about um, the lower third of the seal at the most um, that we've seen. Um, and then a little bit smaller than that, but around that size. Some can be pretty graphic and I, I really wasn't expecting that much of a how much I'd feel that viscerally um, yeah because like part of you um, wants to see the wounds so that you can document it another part is like well I hope they're not injured um, so it's weird to be kind of gratified when you have oh I have data now or something like that but um, yeah you definitely feel bad for the animals we're trying to get an idea of what or how often some of the different species of the sharks are up in the northern Gulf of Maine. So we're attaching a camera to a buoy and putting various kinds of bait on it and then going out to Columbia Ledge which is a half mile, I think, roughly a half mile off the southern side of Mount Desert Rock. And one thing that we've been kind of playing around with are uh, seeing what kind of bait is best fit for attracting sharks because elasmobranchs sharks specifically have incredible sensory organs so we're trying to see which ones are most effective in attracting um, any really species of shark and we just want to get an idea um, as to what's up here. Yeah, um, I, uh, what led this kind of thought and investigation, uh, at least for me, was thinking about uh, we've been hearing that Gulf of Maine is one of the fastest warming bodies of water around. Um, and so we're looking at, is that influencing whether sharks are um, increasingly visiting the Gulf of Maine more? And we've definitely been seeing, um, I've heard 
some talk that um, in the southern Maine there's been um, more predation on marine mammals and we have been seeing some bites here some of them old some of them um, actually look fresh um, so whether we're completely accurate in our assessment or um, what we'd like to get the GoPro out and maybe see if we can see what's causing these injuries so when it comes to I guess things more up north like I, where you think about like shark research shark conservation at least where, where I think which it's more like the tropical areas in, in the global, more, more so the global south, because that's where the larger concentrations of like different shark species are. Like I, they're countless in some areas, but up here in the Gulf of Maine, we have six long-term species that are here year-round, um, or, or they're migratory that will come up specific uh, times of the year. But like that's a very small amount compared to areas that do have uh, warmer water but like Kiernan said earlier it's interesting to see if they are more abundant because the Gulf of Maine is such a rapidly warming body of water compared to the rest of the world's oceans so it could be a new field of study for sharks in the coming decades if it continues to warm at the rate it is which would be fascinating to see So my project is focusing on collecting various small bony fishes um, around the island using um, crab traps. And the end goal is to take them back to the mainland at the end of the summer. Um, but I'm collecting these fish in order to diaphanize them for a museum exhibit. And in case you don't know, diaphanization is a process in which a small vertebrate, um, such as a fish or a mouse or anything around that size, is um, skinned and subject to a series of chemical baths that end up um, essentially clearing the flesh and staining the bones and cartilage. So um, trypsin, along with some other chemicals, eat away at um, everything in the fish's flesh except for the collagen, which holds it together. So you end up with a completely clear fish, and then um, two dyes are added, alizarin red and alcyon blue. And the alizarin red um, combines with the calcium in the fish's skeleton, and the alcyon blue combines with the cartilage, so you end up getting this really beautiful um, highlight of the fish's anatomy. Um, and it's really nice with some lighting, so that'll be going up into an exhibit probably this upcoming spring. Um, and so this project is really important to me. Um, diaphanization is something that I've wanted to do since I was probably about 13, just because it's such a striking, such a striking just image, and it highlights this internal anatomy of a you know of a creature in a way that's so beautiful. And um, me and Thomas Ganya, who I'm working on a project with, did a test run um, of diaphanization using museum specimens, and it went well. So now we feel comfortable doing it with these um, fish. Um, they're collected in the crab traps. We euthanize them with clove oil, which is the most humane way we've been able to find to euthanize them. Fish are underrepresented in the museum's um, exhibits and sort of in the collections, but um, I think that they're not often talked about, especially in the context of the Gulf of Maine now, because it used to be so well known for the cod fishery. And, you know, fin fish, as they're called, are not really as important to um, fisheries in the Gulf of Maine anymore. And a lot of that is because it's become a more invertebrate-dominated ecosystem, um, with the lobster industry being the main fishery. So I think that with 
there, although the Gulf of Maine is now primarily invertebrate dominated, I think that highlighting the fish that are still here, especially these smaller ones that don't get as much attention, especially if they're not commercially valuable, is important because they're difficult to see because they hide down at the bottom and you're not really fishing for them in conventional means and they're just like things that you might not even think about even though you've been close to them anytime you've been near the ocean. And I think that the diaphanization is a really striking way to present that there are these really complex you know, life forms that are still here in this really rapidly changing segment of the ocean. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio, and today's show is Life and Science on Mount Desert Rock, which took us on location to this three-acre ledge 22 miles out to sea this past July. The voices you are hearing today are from the 14-member 2021 College of the Atlantic undergraduate research crew. In our final segment, we turn to the wonder of staying engaged with wildlife research for long enough to watch the offspring grow, which leads our student crew to explore a difficult but common ethical question in wildlife research. How do you balance the potential negative impact of your work on the studied creatures with the future protections and awareness that your work may support? There are no easy answers, but awe and wonder seem to be great places to start on Mount Desert Rock. Um, one of the really cool parts about the rock is throughout the season, we're here from June to August, three months and maybe more. Um, and since everyone had to be out here with COVID, we're not leaving the rock. We've been out here for about a month now. Um, we've gotten, we've had the great opportunity to watch goals hatch from egg to right now they have blood feathers and they're probably just about to start fledging. It's like you get to see these things grow up and face all the trials and tribulations that come with being a bird. Yeah, I think it's something that I didn't know would affect me this much, like as much as it did that because, you know, where I'm from, it's a seagull. It's not a herring gull or a blackback gull. It's like some seagull in some parking lot who's eating french fries it found off the floor. And so to know you're going to hang out in a gull colony is like, oh, cool. And then to get there and to realize that, like, they're so much more complicated than you would think of from a parking lot bird. And, you know, maybe it's me projecting, but they, seem, they seemingly have all of these, like, thoughts and emotions, and you can sometimes see their thought processes. Like, like sometimes... One of my favorite things they do is, I mean, I guess it's kind of sad, but if you get too close or a black bat gets too close and they get aggravated or annoyed, but they, you know, think it's probably not great to attack you right now, they'll pull out weeds and pull out grass from the ground and they just like, take it on and repeat it. And I think that's so cute because there are no weeds here. (laughs) And so they'll like find little sticks in the ground or there's this one that like, pulls on this old fishing rope that's like lodged between two rocks and it'll take it and it'll try to pull it out of the rock because it, its instincts say I should pull something right now and I think that's really cute um, and one of the things that I'm super interested in having come here is kind of the relation between us as a crew and as people um, living on in this gold colony and the gulls themselves and how that this is their colony and it's our summer home in a way that, you know, they return or they don't return, but right now this is their 
their space where they're raising their children, which to me, I think would give them a lot more territorial claim than even though, you know, the school's owned the rock for however many years, but like, we're not doing our lives out here. We're just experiencing it out here and understanding the dynamics of the bird, like this being the bird's home is something that has really struck me. Like we, well, we didn't, but yesterday a group went out and banded a hundred birds, which is an amazing feat, like to go out and like all day they were out there and that's great. And now I didn't, this isn't a call out, but like, in the, I don't know. I just worry like those birds and that's my whole worry. So I don't know if either of you guys want to speak on that, Nathan, maybe, or Jasper of like, like, do you feel like, because I don't like banding. I, I decided not to come because I don't like it. I try to touch the birds as little as possible because they hate me. Um, but does it affect you guys at all? And like, it doesn't have to. I mean, I think what's special about the rock and the birds here and the research we do and seeing that whole process from egg to death of certain gulls and egg to fledging and then to follow um, on the side of bands, once they are banded, then we can track them over up to 19 years, I think is the oldest one that Nathan's seen around here, um, is, I think it's the scale that sets Mount Desert Rock apart from a lot of other experiences that most people have with birds, but especially with gulls. Um, we do a twice daily gull count, and in the mornings we often get around 700-ish birds, um, both great blackback and herring gull combined. Um, and then in the evening we'll usually count something like 700 specifically herring gulls and then four or 500 great blackback gulls. So there's an incredible number of gulls here passing through every day, being added to and subtracted from and it's this constant cycle through of individual birds and each one of them has their own specific life and experience and places they've been and everything and I think on the side of banding it's to me it does it definitely does have an effect on me short answer is yes <laughs> I think there's a huge effect I'm always questioning sort of the morality of the science that we conduct not only here but anytime I'm in any sort of research setting and part of the reason we did so many in one day is to reduce all of that stress to one day and not draw it out over the course of the season. Um, it's that ever cycling question of what is the study worth? This is my third summer out here, um, which yeah, full third full summer, which is a lot, a lot of time out here. Um, every time I come back here, it's shocks me more than the previous time. I really do just love it. Um, and I guess this is the first summer on the rock where I have worked with gulls intensively. Um, and I do agree it is very invasive and it's not always my favorite thing. But um, we, when we are banding, another other purpose is for the banding is because herring gulls as well as almost every species of bird is declining. And we're trying to basically see if our birds, even if it says hard to read, you can still can read the band sometimes. Uh, if they are going to other colonies, if they're mixing with other other birds from other regions, if they're you know if say if this colony collapses, are the birds going to move elsewhere and where are they going? So just like banning them so that we know exactly what's going on with their population, so we can keep track of them. And when we do do the banding, we 
trying to do it in the like safest possible way. So going to the exterior of the island and then moving inwards so that none of the birds go towards the shore because that's never fun. Because even though they can't swim, like if they got down to the shore, they're more vulnerable to other like blackbacks or other species that might want to prey on them. Unfortunately, in a sense, it is and part of the nature of the work. I mean, um, I do the couple pod work. I, I tow from three sites a week, and um, each week from each of these sites, I have to kill hundreds of thousands of organisms. Um, and so there's a part of me that's the hard scientist, but it's also very, like, I'm, I'm very empathetic, and um, I think if you can appreciate the microorganism, you can appreciate anything and I've really fallen in love with them and each one of them that I photograph and identify and measure are so unique and um, individual and um, they have such an important part to play in the entire ocean and um, yeah I've, I've grown such a strong passion for them and it's hard because they're all dead and every time somebody asks me they're like how are the copepods and I'm like they're dead um, <laughs> But I, yeah, I, I don't, I didn't start out really passionate about microbiology. I've always thought I would go into something a little bit larger. Um, but in fact, like I am going into something larger because they are the building blocks for everything. And so, yeah, I have to grapple with the fact that I'm killing all of these things, but I've developed such an appreciation for them and such a love for them and an understanding of what it means to like be in o like an ocean so yeah and i also think we all here really have this grapple with what it means to be um i guess a researcher and um playing our part on this remote island and how we affect our space so. yeah so my project also involves killing things sadly and it's larger organisms on a smaller scale but it is something that I have thought a lot about being here and it's just oh I'm just on this island and I'm just showing up and I'm killing things and sitting them on the boat back to a big freezer but um, I think that one of the ways I've justified it to myself is that I'm thinking about like these are these small weird animals that no one thinks about and I do and given that they are going to be in an exhibit in a museum gallery I want them to inspire people and make them think just I want I just want people to be able to see them and see that they're like more complex and that fish aren't come in all sorts of different shapes that they exist here in the Gulf of Maine and just, yeah, for people to be able to appreciate the complexity and the beauty of things that people don't just think about as much. Like, going, sort of like, you know, it's similar to the copepods in a way. Yeah, and I think it's also about, it's not just us. It's we're, we're taking what we're learning and we're taking what we're doing and then we're taking the science and the art and the humanities and we're bringing it back um, to something larger. And so I can take my data and I can give it to the scientific community, but I can also spread like uh, and share my love and passion for this microscopic world that people don't see. And um, even just now I get to share it. So that's really incredible. It's not just us.
Yeah, and, and going back to that, I think just to go back to di diaphanization in and of itself, I think that it's one of the best examples of a combination of art and science because it's using chemistry and it's using knowledge of biology um, to create these like specimens that are you know beautiful. They look like stained glass almost, and um, and I think that especially given that they're going into a museum, an educational museum context, I feel like that's one of the best uses I could have for that. I think there's a certain level of compassion, reverence everyone kind of holds for their study animals. Yeah, um, going off of that, what I think about for um, the benefit that we get out of um, getting this data, when sometimes that means um, harming the animal or killing them to include it in your study, um, the benefit that comes out of that is the story you're able to tell. Um, like with the gulls, for example, you're able to like say like, oh, this, this gull's been alive for 19 years and it's been spotted here in the country and you're able to, um, even just like kind of seeing where it's been and you, you no longer see it as just like this par um, parking lot animal um, and being able to tell that story to other people that maybe aren't in the scientific community, I think building that appreciation is where um, it's kind of the first step in building a lot of um, legislation or other movements of um, protecting these animals. And um, so that's what I think about a lot is like, I, I need to start with understanding them. And from that, it like quickly goes to appreciation to actual um, progress. And we're in this place where there's not as much to look at and we're able to look at so much more because of it and it makes the world feel like a lot bigger. And I feel like that's a big thing that I've gained from like looking at watching the chicks grow up is just like, it just like feels like this whole world that like I never knew happened. That like every single time I see a herring gull on land, like it had this experience with like all of these chicks and it just makes the world feel like so much bigger because like if you just could sit down with like any small organism on the mainland where there's so many more of them, like it's just this whole world is like in I think, just going off of what everybody is saying, this island has consumed us all <laughs> in so many different ways. Um, and we have a lot of background noise. I don't know if they can hear them, but we have the goals. We have a lot of people like talking all the time. We have all of these different things going on. But in a sense, most of our background noise is gone and we're really allowed to focus on what's right in front of us. We see the same people and the same things every day for the most part. We see a lot, I mean, we see a lot of different things, but we're really able to focus on ourselves and our projects and the environment around us and um, get, I, I don't want, want to be cliche and say like, get back to what matters most, um, but in a sense, getting rid of that background noise, we can really understand what we value. I just got, like, like we were talking about, like, I don't know, I definitely feel blessed to be out here, and it is, like, all-consuming, like, a completely life-changing part of my life. But it feels pretty, it feels pretty monumental, and it made me, like, think maybe... 
just about like how how privileged I am to be out here right now, especially in times of COVID when you know my family's out there like working in restaurants and having to put their masks back on because things are getting worse again and when I came out on this island I thought oh great when we get off it'll be gone and that's whether or not that happens either way like we get to be out here during like one of the most terrifying global experiences and pretty much forget about it. And like we, you know, we can put our phones away and that we have like all of this opportunity to look at the plants and to look at the gulls. And I just think it's amazing. And what, like how much better I feel internally to, to be directing my energy towards the life rather than like something such so small, something like microbi- microbiology and baby chicks and something so small while there's something so huge going on in the world that we can just ignore and I don't know what I'm even like if this is an acknowledgement or an apology for not being there but I just think like something has brought me here and it's like I'm incredibly grateful to be here and I just want to say I too am incredibly grateful to have spent 36 hours on this tiny island far out to sea in the middle of the Gulf of Maine. And I hope that you, our listeners, now have a picture in your mind about life and science on Mount Desert Rock. Thanks so much to the entire 2021 College of the Atlantic Mount Desert Rock crew for welcoming us into your fold and sharing your work. Thanks go to the station managers and students, including Olivia Jolly, Nathan Dubrow, Jasper White, Ryan McGraw, Tess Moore, Kiernan Crow, Bailey Tauzen, Zach Aiken, Annika Ross, Izzy Grimm, M. Como, Abby Jo Morris, Thomas Gagne, and Levi Sheridan. Thanks also to Galen Koch of the First Coast and her intern Camden Hunt for their help gathering audio and brainstorming storylines. Thanks to the behind-the-scenes Mount Desert Rock support crew from College of the Atlantic who helped us get out there, including Toby Stevenson, Ella Keegan, Dan Dandanto, and Sean Todd. And thanks finally and especially to Olivia Jolly, whose passion for this strange, rocky, oceanic ledge inspired this episode of Coastal Conversations. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Catch the latest episode of Coastal Conversations from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM or find past shows in the WERU.org Public Affairs Archives. You might also like to catch our sister program, Talk of the Towns with Ron Beard, on the second Wednesday of each month at 4 p.m. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Until next time, this is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.